Last week, we discussed the return of Jesus. It's closer than ever before. How exciting. This week, we talk about what it looks like when he does come back. The king is coming. Plus, on top of all that, we discuss the what and the when of the millennium. Welcome to the Deep End. This is the Bible, and this is the Deep End Podcast, where we talk about the Bible in modern day language. Thank you for joining us. This is the Deep End. Welcome, everybody, all those joining us on radio. So glad that you are with us. My name is Tim, host of the Deep End Podcast, where we have been going verse by verse through the book of Revelation. Be aware, we are always interested in your questions, and uh, you can send those in to um, our phone number there, 508-316-9333, for all of our radio listeners, 508-316-9333. Ask anything. Uh, We'll take your questions as they come in and mostly when they are relevant to the topic that we are discussing. So we are going to get right into the teaching today. Last week, if you were with us, we talked about Matthew 24, the return of Jesus, the signs of the times. Uh, I was just moved by the podcast episode myself. You know, things to remember that Jesus is coming back, and it is closer than ever before, and all the things that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, they seem to be coming true. So today we need to talk about what it looks like when he comes back, and that brings us to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. Okay, here we are. Revelation chapter 19, the return of the king. The return of the king. And we were in Revelation 19 last time, two weeks ago when we were in Revelation, but now we're closing out Revelation 19, and we're going to dive a little into Revelation chapter 20, and we're going to talk about the millennium. But before we get there, we're going to talk about this portion here in Revelation 19 and how it relates to millennium uh, before we get to that. Now, I want to remind you about the book of Revelation. It is three scenes, three scenes, and this comes from the, the book of Revelation, Revelation 119, when Jesus shows up to John in the Isle of Patmos, which if you remember way back at the very first episode on this season of the deep end, we talked about that Jesus told John in Revelation 119, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place. Now John is getting this revelation, he's getting around 64 AD, and so he's being shown, uh, he's being told to write about the things that he has seen Past tense, what's going on right now? What have have you seen? And what you've seen, what he had seen, is what the church was like in AD 64. And he talks about that in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. What's good about them? What's wrong about them? What needs to change? And what Jesus warns them about. There's only two churches that don't get warnings, but the rest of the churches get warnings. And so that was what he had seen, past tense. Then he says, write those things that are in Revelation 119. And that means that what John was experiencing at that time was persecution, believers uh, being fed to the lions, being burned at the stake, uh, being uh, circus acts of uh, horrible circus acts of of human uh, atrocities uh, in the Roman Colosseum. Uh, at the behest of Emperor Nero for the entertainment of the Roman pagans. And they were being killed and, and persecuted. And so he was seeing that. So he talks about that in Revelation 4 to 18, discusses that. And then depending, depending on your view, remember the four views of Revelation, historicist, AD 33 to the second coming of Christ, uh, preterist, uh, ascension of Christ to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, the futurist, the last seven years of human history, uh, encompassing the Great Tribulation, 
or the spiritualist, which is these are themes for the church age until Jesus comes again. But I see it as it could be all four views, and mostly I side a lot with the historicist view, Revelation 4.18, being that John is seeing the things that are his, his, his generation's persecution and then what it's going to look like for the church age throughout the centuries. And we discussed that in the seven seal judgments, the seven uh, bowl ju- uh, trumpet judgments, and then finally the seven bowl uh, judgments. So you've got these, this progression, the things that are from Revelation 119 that, that John is supposed to write. And then Revelation 119 ends like this, right the things that are to take place after this. So after the persecution of the church, after the tribulation that the church goes through, and whether that's the historical view, the futurist view, predators view, it doesn't matter. After you see the church suffer, after you see the church age uh, completed, you're going to see Jesus come back and inaugurate the consummation of all things. So guess what? Guess what, ladies and gentlemen? We are in part three of the book of Revelation. We were, you know, working through 4 to 18. We got to Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now the second half of 19 through the end of Revelation is that that third scene that John is commended to write. So we need to know what's going to happen in the end. How does it all end, right? Reminds me of that great scene from the Truman Show. I love that movie. When, when he sees the button on the girl's shirt and it says, how will it end? And he says, I was wondering that too. Don't you wonder that? I wonder that. And here's one of the things that we think about. We think about utopia. I want you to imagine with me utopia. Now, how many of you, when I say the word imagine, think about one thing, and that is this famous song. Put it up for me. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Uh, very famous song, John Lennon, 1975. We probably can't play any more of the song than that for copyright reasons. You know the song. It is a very famous song. It is like the great hymn of the secularist age, right? Let me read the lyrics for you. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living in peace. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. John Lennon, imagine 1975. Imagine utopia. Why do I bring this up? Because there is something inside of us that longs for utopia, is there not? I mean, this has been the quest of humanity, I think, from humanity's origins. And really what it is, is we have lost paradise. You know, the great Dante poet, poet, oh, poem, paradise lost. We have lost what we had in the garden, peace with each other, abundance, blessedness, eternal joy, no tragedy, no death, no sin, no corruption. And from a Christian perspective, Jewish perspective, the presence of God. And because we don't have that, we long to get it back. Sin has disconnected us from what we were made for. We want utopia, though. We want this elimination of war and famine, plagues, pestilence, disease. I mean, every time you're sick, I mean, come on, let's be honest. Every time I'm sick, I desperately want to get well. 
I'm like, <laughs> as soon as I get sick, I just get miserable. I'm like, you ever get that little tickle way in the back of your throat, like right here? And you just know, you just know, oh no, I'm in for 10 days of misery. Ah, I hate that. And you know, I just long for the days when there's no more common cold, right? And then just imagine the scriptural teaching about the lion laying down with the lamb and the little child playing with them. And, uh, you know, imagine the time, a time when snakes don't bite you with poisonous venom, uh, when spiders don't po- uh, poison you, or when, how about this, just when mosquitoes don't bite you anymore. Hallelujah. It's July here in New England. And, you know, that would be a blessing right now. Uh, but just imagine living at perfect peace with the created order. And, we all want that, don't we? We want that. There, that's ingrained into us. And, and so I believe that we have tried to, to get utopia um, through our understanding of it. And because we have a sinful heart and a broken heart and the human condition is desperately wicked, Jeremiah 79, that we have a hard time working out utopia. So you, you look at the last century, the, this, uh, what many historians call the century of blood, the 20th century, communism comes out of this idea that everybody should have equal share. Everybody should be treated fairly. And so you get communism where uh, all economic means and all economic distribution uh, are governed by the state and everybody gets an equal share. Well, that doesn't actually lead to utopia. It actually leads to dystopia. And then you think about our country even further back in the 1700s, founded on the idea that all men are created equal and are endowed with liberty and you know life liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And, and so these things we are aiming for, hoping for, longing for um, the world to be a better place. Even dictators who brutally oppressed people or tried to annihilate uh, certain people groups did so because they thought that, that that certain people group were harmful to the utopian vision that they had for the world. And we are longing and we have been longing for utopia. We've been doing what John Lennon has been saying about in 1975. Imagine a world where everything is at peace. I love what John MacArthur says. I love this. He says, quote, From the remotest point of antiquity, men have longed for and talked about a golden age, a utopia, an age of peace and justice and righteousness, a time when oppression and war will cease. Poets have written about it. Folk singers still sing about it. Politicians promise it. Prophets predict it. Most people cry for it. And no one brings it. Guess what? Jesus will deliver it. Amen. That's what Revelation 19 is going to tell us. Don't you get sick of the division, too? Like, let's just talk about that. It is uh, 2019, and already, already we're getting political debates. Already we're getting the ratcheted up election season fever. Dear Lord, help us. Oh, I can't take it. I mean, it just seems like it just ended just a couple days ago. Doesn't it seem like it just ended a couple days ago? Now we're going right back into another election season. And every four years, our country goes through this enormous division. And we talk about how divided we are and how sectarian we are. And it seems like I didn't even stop after this election, this past, this past election of Donald Trump. It seems like it's gotten even only just worse in the sectarian, uh, you know, uh, conversation in our country. It's, it's just sad. Aren't you tired of it? I don't even want another election season. I just Can we just limit the election season to September to November? Like, let's just two months. Two months, no talking about it, nobody, nobody campaigning, nobody raising money until September of the election year, and let's just limit it. I wish we could do that. 
the, the thing is, the reason why we get weary of this is because we are not made for these divisions. Division hurts us. Division harms our hearts. And Jesus is coming one day to put away division from the human heart. Now that's not going to happen with a certain measure of division eternally as well. And so what we're going to see here in Revelation 19 is that utopia comes, but it doesn't come without a little bit of dystopia first. Dystopia and utopia. Dystopia meaning the dissolution of all things, the, the outbreak of eternal war or apocalyptic you know, nuclear fallout visions of the world being chaotic and, or ruled by governmental you know, heads of state that are brutal and, and terrorist. Well, that's one version of the future that a lot of people hold in our generation, and then the utopian version is deep down in our hearts. We want the world to be at peace. Well, it's only going to come to that place when the Prince of Peace returns. So, Revelation 19 is unpacking what Jesus talked about in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 29, where we left off last week, that's why we had that little excursion to Revelation 24, because now we pick it up. He said in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So the tribulation, or the church age, whichever your view, ends with Christ's return. So let's pick it up here. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Here's what it says. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now, just think about this. Jesus is coming. He's coming back, it says here, on a white horse. Now, depending on the view of Revelation that you take, this is literal or figurative. Literal white horse, Jesus coming, or figurative, the gospel being pronounced to the nations. Now, before we get to those views, I, I want to just talk about how Revelation 19 has inspired many a song, many a good song, actually. Uh, back in the day, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, yours truly was a worship singer. I used to sing and play the keyboard and lead the church in worship. And uh, one of the songs back in my day, I sound like an old person when I say back in my day, back in the glory days of the church, was a song called We Will Ride. I don't know if anybody in the studio remembers that. No, they're all a bunch of millennials. They have no idea what I'm talking about. Okay, well, We Will Ride was a, you know, uh, earth-shaking song for the Christian community. Anyway, the biblical Christian community that I was a part of. And, and it basically talked about Revelation 19. And the song, the lyrics went, He has fire in his eyes and a sword in his hand. And he's riding a white horse all across this land. He has fire in his eye and a sword in his hand. And he's riding a white horse all across this land. And he's calling out to you and me, Will you ride with me? Oh, we used to love that song. That song would lift our spirits. You know why? Because it hit us at just the right time. That song came out in the late 90s, early 2000s. Remember, 9-11 had just happened or happened around that time. A lot of people looking at the world pretty down, Christians wondering what's going on, and then we just had to put our hope. We had to put our hope back in Jesus, and the song just kind of caught fire because it reminded us that you know the towers may have fallen, the Pentagon may have been attacked, we might be at war in two different countries, and, and, and it might seem chaotic, but guess what? Jesus is coming back. And sometimes we just got to remind ourselves of that. We have to encourage ourselves with that. We will ride with him. And he's coming on a white horse. This is here. Sitting on the white horse called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges. And in righteousness, he makes war. Don't miss 
that phrase. In righteousness, he makes war. When Jesus came the first time, he came as a baby, humble, meek, and mild. And sometimes we're guilty of leaving him there or we're leaving him on the cross. You know, some people are more infatuated with Jesus on the cross than Jesus out of the grave. Some people, their necklaces are filled with the crucifix, Jesus on the cross. I mean, he's like, he, yes, he went to the cross. The, in, in the cross, he triumphed over sin, hell, and death. But guess what? He didn't stay on the cross. He came off the cross, into the grave, and out of the grave, and to the right-hand side of God the Father. And sometimes we get guilty of only seeing the two first sections of Jesus' ministry, his, his birth, where he comes as a mild child, and then his death, where he dies a brutal, torturous death. And then we don't, then, then we don't think about the fact that, well, he's coming again. But when he comes again, he's coming in war. He's coming to make war, righteous war. There will be a final war. Now, we have to remember that the context here of Revelation 19 is the consummation of what was spoken about way back in Revelation 16, Armageddon. And in Revelation chapter 16, I was introducing you to the four forces that are coming against the church right now that gather together in Armageddon. Now, remember those four forces. Four forces are, we'll put them up here on the screen, Satan, he's the one who originates all the false doctrines and beliefs about God. He's been doing that since the Garden of Eden. The beast, the unifying political leader of the age, some people think he's going to be Eastern European, Western European. Who knows what kind of guy he's going to be? Uh, there's even a scripture that says that he will have no interest in women. That's, I think, in Daniel. And so some people imagine that he might be homosexual or celibate, something like that. Who knows? Uh, then there's the false prophet. He's an alluring spiritual leader of the age. In other words, he will create a spiritual state, but that will be devoid of biblical doctrines. It will have a form of godliness, but no power. We talked about that last week. And then Babylon, which is the corrupting whore of indulgence and luxury, which I consider to be America right now. And it might be America when Jesus comes again. We don't know for sure. But I just, I just kind of want you to, to kind of remind you of the fact that these forces, these four forces will have already gathered together. And remember, think about this. They will come together more and more the closer that we get to Jesus' return. They will come together more and more the closer that we get to Jesus' return. So remember in Revelation 16, 16, they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, Armageddon, we talked about this. I want to remind you. If you go to the land of Israel today, you can visit a place called Mount Megiddo, which Armageddon is, is named after. Mount Megiddo is this hill. It's not even a very high hill, and it actually wasn't a hill historically. They call it the belly button of Israel, the belly button of the land of Canaan, the promised land, because it's kind of right in the middle, and it was a, an ancient city that was fought over and captured and controlled by estimates are up to 23 civilizations over 7,000 years. One city, think about this, one city represents, over the course of history, 7,000 years, 23 civilizations of the world. So Armageddon, the mountain, and you can go visit in Israel today, it's more than just that physical place. It represents something. It represents the nations of the earth coming together against God's people, against the gospel, against Jesus. Okay, and what we are going to see as we get closer to Christ's return is this unification of the world against the church. Now, we are seeing that. We are seeing that more and more, uh, even in our day. There, there's, actually, um, there's actually this happy marriage happening 
in our country and in uh, Western Europe nation, Western European nations, of two great enemies, if you will, of Christianity. Uh, those two groups, I would, I would call them the Muslims and the LGBT community. So it is no secret that there is a lot of animosity between Christians and the LGBT community, at least Bible Christians, people who believe that the Scriptures are the Word of God and are authoritative and the Bible clearly uh, condemns homosexual practice. So there's that, there's that animosity between those two groups. And then Muslims and Christians. Now, Christians, listen, you are not ever called to hate or attack either of these groups. Though they may consider us enemies, we are asked of Jesus to love our enemies, to bless those who persecute us, to bless and not curse, to repay evil with good. So it's a one-way attack, hopefully. It hasn't always gone down like this. Sadly, it has not always gone down like this, but it's a one, it should be a one-way attack. They should attack us. And there's this happy marriage between Muslims and the LGBT community happening in the West, especially in Britain and in this country, where we have this weird alliance between these two groups, which is kind of disconnected from reality. It's disconnected from reality in that if you go to Muslim nations, there are laws in the books that say homosexuals are, should be punished by death, where they should throw where in some Muslim countries they are throwing them off buildings to execute them. I mean, this is what's traditionally, historically Islamic practice regarding homosexuality. But in the West, in the Americans, in the Americas, and in Western European, Western Europe, there is this alliance with these two groups that are, you know, hostile to the Christian faith. Well, why is that happening? Do you know why it's happening? Because that is what Jesus, that's what scriptures predicted. That's what Jesus told John to write down. This is what's going to happen. The world is going, the whole world system is going to come together against biblical Christian faith. And I, and I emphasize the term biblical because there's a lot of Christian faith out there that has no semblance of biblical truth to it. And you got to watch out for that kind of Christian faith. But biblical Christian faith will always present um, a, 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 an affront to uh, the, the, the nations and the cultures of our world that want to create God on their own terms. That's really what it comes down to. What it really comes down to is sinners want to create God in their own terms. I want a God who is friendly with the LGBT community and actually promotes their lifestyle. I want a God who thinks that Islam and Hinduism and all these other religions, doesn't matter what the religion is, as long as you're sincere, we all go to the same place. So I want a, I want a God like that. And all these, all these false notions of, of God... Have, are going to unite together to oppose the church. It's just kind of crazy that it's happening. We're watching it. You need to interpret the times rightly according to the scriptures. So what you see, though, is that as they gather together in Revelation 16, shortly thereafter, Babylon is judged. We talked about that in previous episodes. And then Jesus comes back. And the big point that I'm making is the more and more that you see the world coming together against the church is just a sign that we're getting closer and closer to Revelation 19, the return of the king. And this is what should compel us to hope. So, it describes, John describes Jesus to us. Again, another glorious description of Jesus. We already had one in uh, Revelation 4. Now we see him in Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation 4, he was the lion. I'm sorry, he was the lamb that looked like he had been slain with the voice of a lion. But now he comes back as the conquering general, the leader of heaven's armies. Lots of description here. Revelation 19, 12. Let's read together. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. 
Uh, okay, lots of contrast in this chapter with Jesus and the dragon of the previous chapters in Revelation. So the dragon had seven heads, and he had ten crowns on each horn, uh, uh, on each head. Uh, I'm sorry, seven, seven uh, diadems on each head. So that makes 49 crowns. Well, Jesus has one head and many diadems. Again, and the word here, it, it, many, it, it means more, way more than 49. So Jesus has ultimate authority. Um, the dragon has several names in the book of Revelation that describe him. He is described as the accuser of the saints. He is described as the deceiver of the nations. He is described as the nation, uh, the, the dragon, uh, the, the serpent of old, the deceiver. So he has all those names. What well, Jesus, this says here, has a name that no one knows but himself. What's up with that? What does that mean? Why would he have a name that no one knows himself? Because here's what you have to understand about names in the Bible. Names signify character. Names signify character. And so what it's saying here is that Christ's character, the fullness of his character, the fullness of his name, i.e. character, is not understandable by us presently. He's coming back in a way where we will not truly yet understand him. He is beyond our understanding. He is beyond what we can fathom. That's why he has a name that only he himself knows. Only Christ himself knows himself in fullness. We know in part. Even Paul says that. What we know in part, we shall see fully. We shall know fully. But right now we know in part. And then it says he has, he's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he's called is the Word of God. Now remember, I say this all the time, and it's so important that you get it, that Jesus is the Word of God. And he is the summation of the Word of God. He is everything the Word of God is about is about Jesus. You see, the Bible is about Jesus. Just like Revelation, we talked about it from week one of this study. Revelation is the revelation of Jesus. It is not the revelation of the Antichrist. It's not a revelation of who Satan is. It's not the revelation of what's going to happen in the last seven years of human history. It can talk about those and discuss those events and discuss those characters, but ultimately it's a revelation of what Jesus is up to in the world until he comes back again. And so this is our hope. Our hope is in the return of the king and no matter how dark and no matter how confusing the times get, we are to be reminded here in Revelation 19 that Jesus is coming. The great theme of the book of Revelation is two words, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Wherever you are, whatever you're going through, whatever you're struggling with right now, good news, Jesus wins. Jesus, it might not feel like it right now as it does not look like it throughout the book of Revelation, but it will ultimately be the reality at the consummation of all things. So he's coming back. Dip, robe dip, dipped in blood. Why dipped in blood? Because he comes to make righteous war. He comes to make righteous war. Uh, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Verse 14, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Thus the song, we will ride, right? So we are riding with Christ on the right horses, white horses, coming into the world. Um, and... This is also could be a combination, depending on your view of Revelation. It could be a combination of angels and the saints. It could be the saints only. It could be angels only. I believe it's the saints because fine linen was already referred to as the righteous acts of the saints, actually in verse 8 of Revelation 19. So we have the saints, Jesus, coming back, and then look what it says here in verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. 
And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Okay. So, let's break down the views. Remember, four views. Historicist, preterist, futurist, spiritual, view of Revelation. Those four. If you take the historicist view of Revelation... If you take, sorry, my watch is just flipping out right there. If you take the historicist view of the book of Revelation, you're going to have to see, they actually say this, that what you see here is that this coming of Jesus actually isn't a literal coming. It's actually the coming of Jesus through the conversion of the nations in vast numbers toward the end of the church age. Where do you get, where do they get that idea? Right there in verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. Well, Remember that Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is, a, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning thoughts and intentions of the heart. So what the historicist says is Revelation 19 is not actually talking about this cosmic return of Christ to earth as much as it's talking about the fact that the nation shall be suddenly and quickly converted to Christianity toward the end of the age through the preaching and teaching of the word of God. Now there is a great amount of historical um, legitimacy to this view. Because after the Reformation, and remember the historicist view takes the 1260 days as years from the time that the Bishop of Rome uh, is inaugurated until the Reformation, time of Reformation and, this, and really the French Revolution. In other words, the, the uh, Roman Catholic Church having absolute potentate control over human history. That kind of ends at the... French Revolution, and with the uh, Reformation in the 1500s. And if you consider the growth of Christianity from the 1500s onward, it is astounding. It is astounding. You can actually look up these charts online. You can look up these, these um, historical maps that kind of progress through history, and you can see the rise of Christianity, and it kind of rises up through northern Africa and southern Europe, and then all of a sudden the Turks and the Muslims kind of take over those areas and in Africa. And then if you watch the, the, the graph unfold, I wish I had. I should actually have gotten this for you, but nonetheless, I'll just describe it for you. When you get to the Reformation, it suddenly explodes into Europe and then explodes into America. And when it gets to America in the 1800s and the 1700s, it explodes around the world. And this is true that the gospel has been preached around the world right now in ways unheard of in times past. Most notably, it is going even faster and farther because of this right here. You're watching through YouTube or Facebook or the internet. It's coming to you where you are, in your car, at your home, in your workplace, wherever you are. So the gospel has been going forward quicker than ever before in human history, and it's really wonderful. And so the historicist says, Revelation 19 is not a cosmic return of Christ. It is just the, the astounding um, you know, expansion of the gospel around the world. And so it's an interesting view. I'm not sure I take it. Maybe you take it. I don't know. But it is an interesting view nonetheless. The preterist view, again, says basically the same thing, but it says that it starts in 70 AD, which I'm not sure actually falls in line historically because, again, Christianity did not spread quickly, really, until the publication of the Gutenberg Bible and the printing press, the, you know, the inauguration of the printing press, the vast mass production of the Bible, getting it into the hands of the common person, all that kind of stuff that happens. It just spreads like wildfire. So that's what the preterist says. The futurist, we've already talked about this. The futurist view says, this is Jesus coming back, literally, cosmically, coming back from heaven. Now, there is a problem. 
with the future's view, and this being Jesus' return, literal, literal return, cosmically. And that is, he's on a white horse. And it might sound nitpicky, but here's what the historicists say. The angel told the disciples when he ascended into heaven, the same Jesus that you saw ascending will descend the same way that he came. The same way that he ascended, he's going to descend. And so their little nitpicky argument here is that, well, he didn't ascend on a white horse, so he's not coming back on a white horse. And so this is not literal, it's figurative. Uh, it sounds nitpicky to me, I'm not sure. The, the point of the matter is, we know two things are true, okay? Two things are true. Number one, the gospel is expanding across the world like never before, especially in China, especially in India, especially in, in, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. The global South is experiencing revival in astounding numbers. Uh, and, and where we see the West depreciating in Christian values, depreciating in Christian expansion, the other areas of the world, third world areas of the world are exploding in Christian growth. And so that's happening. Secondly, there's no question that ultimately Jesus does return because he said he was going to return and the angels told the disciples that he would return. It's just a question of, are we at that point here in Revelation 19 or not between the views? I personally think we are at that point. I think Revelation 19 is describing a cosmic, literal return of Jesus where he comes uh, with a robe dipped in blood and he strikes down the nations and he rules them with a rod of iron. And then this line, look at this line very carefully. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Now, the wrath of God is not a happy place. The wrath of God is not a happy thing for those who have rejected Christ. Uh, you should also understand that Revelation 19, I said it inspires songs left, right, and center because of the hope that it provides. One of the great songs that's probably going through your head right now as I talk that has been inspired by Revelation 19 is called the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Lyrics go like this. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loot the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah, glory, glory, hallelujah, glory, glory, hallelujah. His truth is marching on. Great song. Inspired by the return of Jesus. Time for a deep end diatribe. You guys know I'm famous for this. This is where I go way off the deep end. I go way off the course that we're talking about. And I talk about current events and I talk about what's going on in our world and what's wrong with America. And if everybody would just listen to me, this place would be all ship shape. Come on, somebody. So let me go on my little diatribe about this. This song, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, I'm just wondering, I am just wondering, when, when is it going to happen that somebody, some nitwit out there on Twitter, some celebrity is going to come out with this tweet? The Battle Hymn of the Republic is really a racist song because it was written at a time when America had slaves. I'm just wondering, when is this going to happen? Because you just, don't you feel like that? I feel like it's, it's, it's the unhinging of American life that we are watching. We are right now watching the unhinging of what is America. And so a little bit of history for you, just so that you know how to defend when this happens, because I just think it's just a matter of time, right? Uh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic was written by an abolitionist named Julia Ward Howe. A woman wrote this song. A woman and an abolitionist. Please remember that. Writes this song. She wrote it in 1861 to celebrate or to propel the Union Army to victory over the South in the Civil War in order to eliminate 
Guess what? Slavery. <laughs> so I'm pointing out that Revelation 19 inspired the Union armies to fight for the emancipation of the slaves because all men are created equal and all are equal, all are, all are deserving of dignity because they are all created by God, a God who loves them and made them in his image no matter what their skin color is. It's just incredible that this song is singing about the judgment. Think about it. The judgment that they associated in Revelation 19 in the song, The Battle Hymn of the Republic, is on those who practiced slavery. So you say, why are you pressing on this? Because we need to talk about this like never before. There is a trend right now in our country that is destroying the fabric of who we are, especially among the young. And I know they are getting this in their public schools because I have two public school educated children. Three, actually. Three public educated school, public school educated children. I only say two at first because two are aware of what's going on. The other one's playing with crayons. He'll get there. But the two that know what's going on repeatedly come back to me and say, Dad, I learned this in school today. I, I learned that today we shouldn't celebrate Christopher Columbus. I learned that today uh, America's founders were really racist and segregationist. I, I learned it. And what they are learning today is that America is just a horrible place. America is just a horrible place filled with evil throughout its history, and we need to hate America and become more like the rest of the world. And this is sad. This is sad. It's sad because you should have great pride in your country. You really should. You should take pride in your country. You know, do you know the benefits of just feeling connected to community? Like regardless of religious background or belief or ethnicity or where you come from or where you're second generation immigrant, first generation immigrant, whatever it is, to come together in community is healthy for the human condition. And I fear that the more we teach young people to hate our country, the more suicidal they're going to feel. The reason why is because you have to feel like you're connected to something. And, and so what we're what was happening in our schools with revisionist history, particularly on the coast, okay, particularly on the coast, uh, I think it was Kentucky just passed a law that the Bible is now going to be taught in their public schools. Good for you, Kentucky. Amen. I'm all for it. Hallelujah. Good for you. But on the coast, anyway, where I live, if you're in, in Massachusetts, if you're along the coast of, of, uh, of New York, New Jersey, of Pennsylvania, if you go all the way over to... Um, California, Portland, or all the way up to Oregon, Seattle. Okay, the coasts are losing their mind. The coasts are teaching kids more and more that this country is just a, a hate-filled, bigoted, homophobic, racist, misogynistic country in its history, and so therefore we are, we are compelled to disregard every facet of American history. Right now in San Francisco, a high school named after George Washington, is paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to cover up a mural of, guess who? George Washington. <laughs> the high school is named after him. And there's a mural on the wall of him. And it's because the brilliant educators of that high school have deemed his image slash portrait offensive. And it triggers their safe space-centered students. So we can't talk about George Washington. We can't even talk about his contribution to the American experiment. Why? Because he owned slaves or he did something terrible. He had views that we don't share anymore. Now, uh, before you castigate the school, quick disclaimer, I've seen the mural. You got to look it up for yourself. Parts of it are weird and maybe it should be, I don't know, adjusted or changed. But look, can we just rewrite George Washington out of our history? Is this where we're going? My concern is that how much history should we cover up? How much should we eliminate? Because, of course, there's bad history to America, but it doesn't mean that we just disregard everybody who came before us. This is from the Washington Post in 2016, another example. 2016, right after the election of Donald Trump, the, the University of Virginia, the president of the University of Virginia, a university founded by 
Thomas Jefferson, sent out an email quoting Thomas Jefferson to the students, basically saying that we need to remember to take responsibility for our world. That was the quote. That was the quote that he used from Thomas Jefferson. And he was just basically saying, hey, remember that our school is founded by this guy who said that ultimately liberty depends on us taking responsibility for ourselves, quote, end, end quote. And he says, I encourage University of Virginia students to do that today. Well, 400 students and faculty members of that university got so triggered by him quoting Thomas Jefferson, they wrote an email to him and all signed it saying, enough is enough, stop quoting this bigoted slave owner. And yes, Jefferson had slaves. And yes, he was a very conflicted man. In some ways, he was very advanced in his view of human dignity and, and the value and worth of every human being. And in some ways, he was the complete opposite of that. I ask you, you, I ask, aren't there similar conflicts in your own life? No, maybe you're not owning slaves. Of course you're not. But don't you say one thing and do another? Come on, let's be honest. We all do it. You do it, I do it, we all do it. We all have ideals and we all fail to live up fully to those ideals. It's just a fact. It's a fact. This idea, I can't stand hypocrites. Everybody's a hypocrite. Everybody's a hypocrite. There was a report that came out about recycling. Uh, do you know who recycles more than anybody? People who, de who deny that climate change is the result of human activity. They actually recycle far more than people who believe that climate change is the result of human activity. Do you know what that's called? Hypocrisy for those who, do, who say that it's human, act, it's human cause, but they don't recycle. That's hypocrisy. The ideal is there, but they don't live up to it. The same is true for those who oppose uh, the right to life for children. They, they, on one end, they say that women uh, are deserving of the same rights as men, and yet women get aborted in the womb. They get put to death before they have a chance to breathe. And then the other, the, the other uh, hypocrisy of the, the pro-abortion movement is that far and away more African Americans are aborted than whites in this country every single year. Far and away. And so... The people who are claiming to be equal rights for all are actually living a different standard. And the point that I'm making is everybody does this, and we cannot throw the baby out with the bathwater of historical figures in this country who have contributed to what makes this country a noble enterprise in human history. We do so to our own detriment. We do so to our own detriment. When we start wiping out Thomas Jefferson, when we stop, start wiping out George Washington from our history, the question I have for you is, what history do we have left? I don't know. It's the one that's going to be rewritten. And then who gets to rewrite the history? And then what do our kids learn? They learn nothing. The reason why we study history is so we can learn not to repeat it, right? Now, the amazing thing about this Thomas Jefferson controversy is, is, is old now, but just, uh, just last week, the city of Charlottesville discontinued celebrating Thomas Jefferson's birthday as a holiday for the city. Do you know why? Because he was a slave owner. Now, the city that he founded is no longer celebrating his birthday because he didn't live up to his ideals. Okay, <laughs> whatever. I don't care if they have the holiday or not, but my point is we need to be careful of how we read American history. We need to. And parents, you guys got to take the lead on this. You got to know American history. You got to get the right resources and study up on it so that you can defend it for the kids who are getting indoctrinated by a, by a school system that is completely antagonistic to Christian faith. The ironic thing about the Thomas Jefferson controversy, though, is this. Do you know the person that quoted Thomas Jefferson more often in the, tw in the 20th century than anybody? Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther King Jr. quoted Thomas Jefferson left, right, and center, all over the place. <laughs> and he quoted him to talk about civil liberties for black Americans. 
But today, that's off the table. Look, we gotta we gotta stop. This is madness, and we've got to be aware that it is happening. Another more recent example, and you've probably heard about this. I don't even want to talk about it. I'm gonna talk about it because you know what? Diatribes are meant to be lived to their fullest. Am I right? I am right. <laughs> of course I'm right. It's my diatribe. Okay, this, these two images. The Nike shoe with the Betsy Ross flag. Nike pulled it off production lines. Why? Because Colin Kaepernick, he, he believes that that flag is a symbol of oppression because it, it, it flew over America when slavery was still in existence. Well, the reason why we got to talk about this is because he doesn't know his history. And I'm not saying that Colin Kaepernick doesn't have the right to protest whatever he wants to protest. That's America, and that's what we have the freedom to do, and we should do it when we see injustice in our country. But I am saying that he doesn't know his history. He doesn't first know his recent history, which is that the Betsy Ross flag actually flew at the second inauguration of Barack Obama. And if you look at any of the pictures of his second inauguration of the state house in the background, you see the American flag draped four ways, and then you see on each side two Betsy Ross flags draping on the American Capitol at the inauguration of our first African-American president. Recent history he doesn't understand. Secondly, he doesn't even know Betsy Ross history. Betsy Ross is a noble figure in American history. First, let's just talk about, first off, she's a, I got some points about Betsy Ross. This is important because we don't, you're not going to hear about this anywhere else. You've got to hear about it here. First off, she was a working woman. Hello? Isn't that modern? She was a working woman in the 1700s. So don't we call that a modern enterprise when women are given the right to work freely? Aren't we for that? Secondly, she was a single mother, twice. Two of her husbands passed away on her, left her with children, and she worked and supported them nobly. And she, so, she learned how to sew to make a living to support her children. Third, she was a Quaker. And the Quakers were a group of Christians who were fiercely opposed to, guess what? Slavery in the 1700s. In the 1700s. Way back in 1758, the Quakers made it an act of misconduct to engage in slave trading. In 1758, over 100 years before the Civil War, the Quakers are right. The Quakers. So, Betsy Ross... I know she left the Quaker church. We actually, she was expelled because she married an Episcopalian. <laughs> the great sin of marrying an Episcopalian got her kicked out of the Quaker church. But nonetheless, you know that those abolitionist roots stuck with her. And when she was sewing that flag, she wasn't sewing it as an, to pay homage to slavery. That's insanity. But now, here's my problem. Here's where I worry. We've got a whole generation of people who follow Colin Kaepernick's disconnect disconnect revisionist history of America and just assume that Betsy Ross was this pro-slavery, wicked human being who should also be wiped off the face of American textbooks because she existed. She dared to exist and contribute to the American experiment when slavery existed in this country. Do you not see the insanity that we are headed for? I feel for the generation coming after us because... As flawed as our country is and always has been and probably will always be, it's imperative that we feel connected to each other. You know, the more that we make the flag a symbol of racism, the less connected we are to one another. And the less connected we are to one another, the less we feel that we have to fight for each other. What, made, what, what makes a country great is the commonality 
of one another. The brotherhood, the sisterhood, the, the fellowship, to use a biblical term. And we're losing as a country. Again, these are things that we talk about in the deep end. We would never talk about this on the weekend at Water Church, but we talk about it in the deep end because it needs to be talked about. Uh, and, and, and it needs to be clarified what history is really about. Okay, let's get back. That's diatribe over. Let's get back to Revelation 19 because we need to go back here. So look at what it says in verse 17. It says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice, he called to the birds. Interesting. He called to the birds that fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses the fl- and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. All right. Now, Revelation 19 opened with the marriage supper of the lamb for God's people. Guess what? It closes with the supper of the birds for the devil's people. <laughs> and it is not pretty. And he calls for the birds that fly directly overhead. Why? What, 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 what's this terminology about? Well, this, is, this, this little passage right here is wonderful because it proves the authority of Scripture, not just in theological constructs of what we should believe as Christians, but also in geological realities, in biological realities. This is cool. Okay, this is a scientific biological fact about the land of Israel, which is, by the way, where Megiddo is, where we believe Armageddon, the final battle, will be fought. Okay, well, guess what? In the land of Israel, right overhead, every year in the spring, millions upon millions of birds flock in the spring. Uh, They go south, or sorry, north, I'm sorry, to Russia, in the spring, and then they come back in the fall down into Africa, and they fly, guess what, directly overhead of Israel. This is a biological fact. In fact, when Israel was starting to do uh, air travel into and out of its country in the last century, they had a huge problem with these birds. They would actually run into planes, crash the planes. They would actually fly into the cockpits of their, of, of their jet fighters and take their heads off. There were so many birds. This is, this is a fact. And so they, they had to study it, and, and the Jews are very good at scientific research and study, and they did. They figured out, how are we going to handle this because there's so many birds migrating at certain times of the year? Well, guess what they did? They actually did enough research, enough study to find out when the birds, these millions upon millions of birds, migrate south and north for their respective seasons, and then they adjusted their flight patterns to miss the migrations, and now you can fly safely in and out of Israel at any time of the year. Why do I bring all that up? So you can know about air travel in Israel? No. So that you can see that what the scriptures are talking about, that the birds that fly directly overhead is actually a biological fact that, was, that God inspired John to write because guess what? God created those birds and he knows how the, how the biological function of birds actually operates. And so at the end times, the judgment of God is going to direct those birds to turn on the enemies of God. And this is the righteous war that God will enact at the end day at Armageddon, and he will wipe them out. And this is the Jesus that we have to remember is coming back, okay? We have to remember. He's not gentle, making mild anymore. He's the conquering general and returning king. He's got a robe dipped in blood, and he makes righteous war. And we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of that because that is who he is, and that is who the world will see. And, and what, how does Revelation open? All nations will mourn because of him. And this is not to be questioned. This is not to be something that we are embarrassed about. Why should we be compelled to tell the nations about Jesus? Because 
He's really coming back. And when he comes back, it's going to be really bad for those who have rejected his offer of salvation by grace through faith. It's not going to be pretty. We are here to preach the gospel and also warn and warn the nations. Okay, the end of the beast. Look at this, this great battle between Jesus and the beast. Not exciting, not, very, not terribly exciting. Kind of a quick, kind of like a Mike Tyson early 1990s fight, okay? Remember the Mike Tyson fights? You guys remember this? Millennials? No? Do you know who Mike Tyson is? Okay, one person. All right. You need to do some true American history. I mean, speaking of American history, Mike Tyson, glorious American history. Anyway, he would get into the ring, and 14 seconds later, the fight would be over. I mean, he just beat the snot out of somebody. It was awesome. It was cool to watch him. Anyway, that's kind of like what happens with Jesus and the, and the, and the beast at the, at the last day. Because look what this verse says in Revelation 19, 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who would receive the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. We talked about that in earlier uh, episodes. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Ouch. That's a Mike Tyson knockout, man. That's 30 seconds. It's over. And really what the scriptures is trying to show you is all, all the nations that rage against the world, rage against the Lord, rage against the scriptures, rage against God's truth, they are no match for when Jesus comes back. It's going to be over in a nanosecond. And the, and, and the false prophet, all these forces that are gathering together against God's people right now, all are going to be quickly cast down. So, uh, it leads me to this question, and well, really not a question, but more of a, dis- a discussion about the utopia and the dystopia visions of our future. I opened this podcast by saying, imagine utopia. Imagine a world where everybody gets along, everything's awesome, everybody's at peace and rest, and there's no war, and there's no famine, there's no bug bites, right? Okay, that's utopia. Well, historically speaking, humankind has imagined the future in one of two ways. Little history, history lesson here. Little literary lesson, actually. Beginning with Plato in 380 BC and going all the way to Thomas More in the 1500s. Historically, between that period, um, humankind had a had a utopian version of the future. They, in, in other words, more often than not, people believed that the that the future was going to be more utopian than not. They believed that we were headed toward a better future. Well, something happens around the time of the French Revolution and around the time of the Enlightenment and human reason and all these kind of things. And beginning at the end of the 1800s, the dystopian view of the future starts to dominate literature, works of art, and uh, the human conscience. And so utopian, positive. We're going to go to a place where there is no war, war, famine, plague, pestilence, bug bites. Dystopian, Starts to take over in the 1800s, late 1800s, late, late 1800s, and we're not going to a better future. We're going to a terrible future. We're going to a terrible, terrible future. It's going to be awful. There's going to be more bug bites than you can imagine. They're going to bite you to death. <laughs> and and now, now, just think about the movies that you watch today. I mean, this begins with literature, H.G. Wells, War of the Worlds, George L. 1984, and others, where we have these dystopian versions of the future. Well, think about the movies now that you watch, the movies that I actually watch. I like them, like The Hunger Games. Dystopian. Maze Runner. Dystopian. The Quiet Place. Have you seen A Quiet Place? Love that movie. Dystopian. 
right? <laughs> Can't make a noise. The Book of Eli. Um, even on Netflix, Bird Box. Dystopian. I Am Legend. Mad Max. Wally. Heaven's sakes. Even Disney gets in on the dystopian uh, view of the world. Uh, the Matrix. Dystopian. So my, why am I bringing this up? Because since, this is, this is important for you to see, since we elevated human reason and rationality and scientific discovery above scriptural authority, and I'm talking not in the, in the, not in the church, but in the world, okay? The enlightenment, human reason starts to take precedence. The individual becomes most important. Um, we start to cast off the antiquated versions of society and reality as, as illustrated in God's word. Now we have final authority over what is true and what is not. Well, guess what happens? We get very negative. That's what happens. And since the 1800s, since the arrival of the reason of man to be the ultimate reality, the ultimate authority, it turns out we hate ourselves. <laughs> That's really what it is. Human beings are negative by nature. And so we can't even imagine utopia anymore. We can't. That's why John Lennon says imagine it, even though we all know it's not true. He actually writes it during the Vietnam War. It's not going to happen. And it hasn't happened yet, has it? And so why am I bringing this up? Because I believe that both versions of the future are true, according to Scripture. There is going to be great dystopia when Jesus comes back. There's going to be a war. It's going to be bad. It's going to be very dystopian for everybody who hates Christ and everybody who rejects him. But the good news is utopia comes next. Utopia comes next. And that's what brings us to Revelation chapter 20. Now, we're going to get into this next week. I, I, I've run out of time. I don't want to go too long, so we're going to talk about this next week, but I just want to read it, and then we'll get to it. Verse, 20, uh, verse 1 of chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a while. Okay. I'm actually kind of glad that we're out of time because when we get to the millennium, lots of controversy about this. And there really doesn't need to be that much controversy. But we'll talk about the millennium views. Are you pre? Are you post? Are you ah, millennial? We'll talk about all those next week. So come on back. But my final point, my final point for this podcast is that Revelation calls the church resolutely toward hope. Revelation calls the church resolutely toward hope. Jesus is coming again. So under that point, I would say this. No, we do not have to imagine utopia, John Lennon. We do not have to imagine. We must simply anticipate it. It happens after a lot of dystopia for the nations that rage against God, but it's a reality for those who are found in Christ. And my question to you, as it was last week, is, are you found in Christ? You're listening on the radio right now, listening in your car. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you were a Christian. Maybe you went to church and you left. Maybe you were a Christian as a baby and never took. Maybe you're doing your own thing. Maybe right now you've just been suffering a to total loss in life. Maybe you just got divorce papers. Maybe you just got the, 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 the cancer diagnosis. And right now you're wondering, in the middle of your dystopian universe, in the middle of your personal dystopia, is utopia possible? It absolutely is. It's possible through accepting the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. And you can do that right now. You can open your mouth and say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I make you my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. I choose to follow you for the rest of my life. Why don't you say it now? Open your heart to him 
in having your heart opened and converted to him, you can know the inner utopia that will be a, an ultimate utopia at his soon return. May God bless you. May God keep you. May you know him and walk with him. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End Podcast. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and in your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End Podcast.